Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 371st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is David Severe. David is the co-founder and CEO of Element Point Family Office, a fee-only RIA based in Miami, Florida, that oversees almost $1.6 billion in assets under advisement for 50 client households. What's unique about David, though, is that through his eight years building Element Point and focusing exclusively on high and ultra high net worth clients, he and his partner, Carlos Dominguez, have created an equity appreciation rights plan to enable the members of their team to participate in the growth of the firm. And key team members can then use the cash they earn after a three to four year vesting period to help fund the buy-in to become future partners where they get outright equity and voting rights and a seat at the proverbial or actual management team table. In this episode, we talk in depth about how David not only works with the ultra high net worth clients with tens of millions of dollars, but has found such success with this core clientele that the firm is dialed back on working with more emerging wealth clients to just focus on the type of clientele to whom they deliver the most value. How David and his partner, Carlos, have increasingly adopted an investment approach utilizing both public and private market investments, but have found it more beneficial to develop relationships with private equity and private credit firms directly on behalf of clients and minimize their use of some of the popular alternative investments platforms. And how Element Point has increasingly expanded its services beyond its original investment management capabilities to provide more financial planning and family office services to the point that now in 2024, despite all the industry buzz about fee compression, the firm is actually raising their advisory fees to better reflect the real value they're providing. We also talk about David's journey from an MBA in law background to joining Goldman Sachs and later JP Morgan, where he initially built with ultra high net worth clients using his firm's premium brands until he was ready to break out on his own as independent. The way that David built a team around himself to support the hyper-customized portfolio needs of his complex clientele who have to align investment decisions with navigating the timing of cash flows out of grats and note payments to idgits, and how the growth of what's become an 11-person team as independent firm made David and his co-founder Carlos realize that they needed both a path to partnership for the next generation advisors and a way to make that path affordable which is what led them to their equity appreciation rights plan to allow the key team members to participate in that financial growth of the firm up until they were offered the chance to outright buy into as equity partners. And be certain to listen to the end, where David shares struggles with relinquishing control and how a key mentor cautioned him that it wouldn't be enough to just compensate his team well while trying to keep all the firm's equity to himself. The way that David balanced his goals of building and expanding a network of professional COIs that could provide him referrals and the sheer need to cold call in his early years just to get any new clients on board when he was first getting started. And how David handled the challenges when he discovered that being an independent wasn't just about having more control and autonomy. It also meant figuring out everything from team and hiring to trade order management systems and technology APIs, and how it took a full three years before he finally felt like the challenges he faced in the business were no longer just the existential threat to survive, but simply the strategic opportunities they would have to navigate to reach the next level. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with David Severe. Welcome, David Severe, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
Michael, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is a full circle moment for me. I've been listening to your podcast since episode one, and it's been a uh, hugely instrumental part of shaping the way that we've built the company. So thank you for all that you do for the industry, and thanks for having me on. Uh, well, thank you. I know you, you've you had a, uh, I guess, a journey for the firm that's kind of paralleled the growth of this podcast itself. And you had started not long before we started this in late 2016, very early 2017. And so I'm looking forward to talking about the growth journey and uh, I don't know, I guess what's been good milestones for you in the growth as, as we've we've grown the podcast and brought guests as well. So Likewise. I'm, I'm, I'm excited yeah. to talk about that. I, I think the first episode of the podcast was around six or eight months after we started Element Point. Wow. So I feel like we've grown up with the podcast. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And 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 I know it's it's been an interesting growth journey for you. I'm 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 kind of looking I, well, I, I'm always looking forward to the conversations around today. I think uh, around these dynamics as as firms grow. And we decide we want to be multi-advisor, right? That's a choice to make. But once once you cross that that uh, invisible line and you you start adding multiple advisors and lead positions, I find there's this whole dynamic that changes in the firm where you're you're not you're not just in a position as a firm owner to you know provide a salary and and a living for the team that that works for you. Once you get to a certain size and start bringing on other advisors, there's kind of this obligation and per- and pressure that grows to build out entire career tracks for them. Um, you know, team members often stay at firms for many years. Advisors can stay at firms for decades. And so there's a whole other layer that starts to crop up around, well, what is our career track to uh, become an advisor, to become a senior advisor? Can we become a partner? Is there a partnership opportunity? How does equity work around here? When do we get to tap into that? What's the difference between equity and partnership and compensation and management? And I, I know you just, your firm has been dealing with this as you've gone through your own rapid growth cycle over the, the past eight years or so. And so I'm just, I'm looking forward to, to digging in and getting to talk a little bit more about how you're trying to solve for these dynamics of uh, partnership and equity and compensation within a, a, a fast-growing advisory firm. Absolutely. It's an area that we have spent a lot of time thinking about, and I'm excited to share the approach that we've taken. And uh, it's continuously evolving as we learn more about the industry and the possibilities and how to structure these types of things. But uh, I think it's so important to have in place uh, forms of uh, both phantom equity or real equity or path and, and, and structuring an organized path to partnership so that every member of the team knows that they have the ability to be partners in the business one day and uh, some clarity around what it would take to get there. So, so we're going to get into that a lot further, but I think before we delve in there, to get us started, uh, just help us understand the advisory business itself that that you have as it exists today. Just paint the picture for us of the the current firm, who you, who you serve, and what you do. Absolutely. So our firm, Element Point Family Office, is a fee only RIA and multifamily office. We work with a fairly uh, select group of 
ultra high net worth and high net worth families primarily. Uh, it's about 50 families today uh, throughout the U.S. And we oversee about one and a half, uh, almost 1.6 billion in assets under advisement. Uh, our business is somewhat unique vis-a-vis many RIAs in that we, because we work with many single family offices and ultra high net worth families, uh, we have about 800 million or so in assets under management, but we also have consulting engagements and family office uh, advisory service engagements um, for uh, both portfolios and illiquid assets, private equity holdings, direct investments, real estate holdings, and so on uh, that aren't necessarily traditional regulatory AUM. Okay. So, so I'm just trying to visualize these numbers. So you know, almost 1.6 billion of AUA, 50-ish families. So like we're talking about average household has 30 plus million dollars and yeah. maybe the higher net worth because you don't necessarily advise on everything on the balance sheet necessarily. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the, and the median and the mean are, are a bit different there. Right. So over time- Big, big clients pull up numbers. Exactly, exactly. And so there's a pretty wide range. When we started the firm- we really wanted to serve uh, a variety of clients and you know, we felt like there were opportunities to do a, a, a better job in many ways than what we were seeing in various parts of the industry. And, and we really wanted to impact as, as many people as possible at first. But what we found over time is that we really were adding the most value to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients in terms of the complex planning and the, um, the unique needs that they had. And we really decided over time to just focus in that space. And so our, our business has really shifted entirely into the ultra high net worth space over the last few years. That might make us a, a, an outlier, but, <laughs> but that's kind of the, the trajectory that we've taken. And I think it was really informed by uh, just our backgrounds, our professional backgrounds and educational backgrounds and where we thought we could add the most value. What brought you to that? Sure. So, uh, so I started my career, and I, and I should preface this with, uh, from an educational standpoint, I, I started out, um, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by education, although uh, I, I don't practice, and we as a firm don't practice law. Um, but I, I came out of a JD MBA program and joined uh, Goldman Sachs out of graduate school and started my career there working with high net worth clients. And um, then later joined JP Morgan and uh, spent about four years at JP Morgan working with ultra high net worth clients. So most of my career had been spent on the um, the ultra high net worth side of the wealth management and private banking business. My my, my business partner and co-founder of the firm, Carlos Dominguez, uh, he and I worked together at JP Morgan Private Bank. So he had a similar experience uh, in working with high net worth uh, individuals and families. But he actually was a complete um, uh, career changer from the institutional side of uh, finance to the wealth management side of finance. He spent about nine years as a hedge fund portfolio manager uh, at an equity long short fund in New York City. And then uh, it started his career as an equity derivatives trader and market maker on uh, on the Amex, which, uh, which of course later uh, merged with the NYSE and became part of the NYSE. So he came from a deep um, institutional money management background, whereas mine was more uh, okay. in law and in wealth management for for high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Um, and and when our firm initially uh, took shape, we um, 
we had launched it to initially work with uh, with three families, uh, two or three families uh, that we had a pretty good idea would uh, would would work with us um, coming out of the gates. And uh, and when when we sat down and we thought about the business, we thought through a lot of the things that you just mentioned. We considered the fact that we'd want to diversify the client base fairly quickly in the wealth management business. The fees, from a uh, percentage standpoint, on uh, smaller portfolio sizes tend to be higher in terms of basis right. points than for larger clients. So we thought that was a nice way to diversify the business as well. And so when we set out to start the firm, our initial vision was let's also have some you know high net worth or emerging wealth clients to diversify the client base and diversify the revenue base. But over time, uh, what we've realized is that our, our real expertise lies in giving uh, sophisticated and highly customized advice to ultra high net worth families uh, and single family offices as well. We're really deep in that area uh, and we've built an outstanding team of 11 professionals today who are, are all focused on the ultra high net worth space and um, so, some of whom weren't necessarily focused on that space before joining our firm, but um, but who really have, have uh, specialized in it over time. And so uh, it's really become our focus. And, um, and, and so we've, uh, it's been the focus of the firm over the last uh, several years. So, so tell us a little bit more about the team structure that, that serves this client base of like, what are what are the seats on the on the proverbial organizational chart to do what you do? Sure. So day one, uh, there were only two of us, Carlos and right. myself. But over time, the team grew from Carlos and I each having ten roles uh, to to gradually uh, bringing on great people and uh, delegating uh, some of those roles and, and having other advisors and investment professionals as well. So our team today. Uh, consists of uh, three professionals who are in what I'll call an advisory role. So uh, I, I, I am CEO of the firm, but consider myself the, the senior advisor on the team. Uh, we have a VP level advisor, Chris Martin, who has been with the firm now for about uh, seven years and is an outstanding advisor and planner and uh, a wealth planning specialist on our team uh, who joined us in a planning capacity. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people think of planning in the context of retirement planning and and, and so on. You know, we, we think of planning uh, in in a little bit of a different context, although just as important, you know, in, in our side of the business, planning can involve uh, very complex ownership structures with all sorts of irrevocable trusts or family limited partnerships or other entities that have been created over time. And often those entities have cash flows that go between them, either for intrafamily loans or promissory notes uh, on, uh, you know, intentionally defective grantor trusts with sales of businesses being made to those trusts. And, and so planning uh, on our side of the business really involves a lot of uh, cash flow modeling for what the cash flow requirements are for various entities that make up this overall family ownership structure. Okay. And so uh, my my colleague, Anthony LeBrake, uh, who's a wealth planning specialist on our team, focuses a lot of his time in that area in uh, in modeling out ownership structure um, you know the the estate plans and um, having a really deep and thorough understanding of what the the overall architecture looks like of a of a family's uh, ownership map, if you will. Um, then on the on the investment side, which is led by Carlos as our CIO, 
Uh, we have four professionals. Um, Carlos is uh, CIO and oversees overall investment strategy. We have a uh, a VP on the investment team who has been with the firm almost since day one. Uh, he started about I think six months into uh, into the firm, and uh, and then an, an analyst and associate on that team. Um, and so their focus day in day out is the investment side of of the business. They are um, they are conducting research. They're meeting with uh, economists from a variety of, uh, of areas. They are meeting with fund managers on a regular basis, um, evaluating all sorts of financial products, um, and also doing trading and rebalancing of portfolios. And so uh, their focus day in, day out is the investment side of, of the business. We have a client service team uh, led by our client service manager, John Rodriguez, who joined us um, also uh, uh, fairly early in the evolution of the firm. And then uh, we have a full-time operations associate and uh, marketing uh, person as well. And that's a fairly recent um addition to the team to have kind of a dedicated marketing role. And that just goes to uh, our growth plans, which are to really uh, continue to to develop the brand and, um, and, and have the business be not just uh, a business built on, you know, my network or Carlos's network or, you know, a couple of our, of our colleagues networks, but rather a, a standalone um brand that's recognized within the the family office and ultra high net worth space uh, that we can continue to build upon. So I'm I'm struck in this um, in this framing. It just gets to you know the the nature of large much larger clients and sort of service demands that they entail. You know you've got essentially three three people in the advisory capacity, yourself and a VP and a wealth planning specialist. Uh, I'll say like just, I'm putting that in air quotes, like just serving nearly 50 families. It's sort of like, you know, from a ratios and like 16 clients per advisory staff team, because there's a lot of stuff you've got to go through when you're trying to validate fee structures for, uh, uh, for those clients and what it takes to serve them when part of the planning process is like, let's map out the cash flows between your uh, idgets and your other family trusts and make sure the family limited partnership is sufficiently funded and map all those cash flows. Yeah, that that's that's exactly right. There's so many variables depending on the family and and where they are in the life cycle of wealth creation, if you will. So there there may be a family that continues to own and operate a highly successful family-owned business and is perhaps uh, looking to Maybe not monetize in the immediate future, but uh, over the coming years. And so they are thinking about putting the plans in place. And we may be doing everything from uh, meeting with investment bankers alongside them to discussing, you know, various liquidity type of scenarios that don't involve an M&A transaction, like a dividend recap, um, and and standing beside them each step of the way, educating them on what the process looks like for something like that. Uh, so that, that may be an area where a family in that scenario uh, could use our assistance and guidance. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there are, you know, families that perhaps are post-liquidity event, uh, may have numerous legal entities set up. Um, it's not uncommon for families that we work with to have 
dozens of uh, of LLCs or family limited partnership type entities uh, owned in turn by you know five to fifteen irrevocable trusts. And uh, and then on top of that, of course, have individual accounts for each family member, and you know, joint accounts and uh, and revocable trusts, and so on. So it's a giant. Uh, I I refer to it as a, as a giant logic game. It's more than merely asset allocation or investment selection. It's all of those things, but it's those things in conjunction with asset location, understanding the tax implications across this overall uh, jigsaw puzzle that is the family's overall holdings and really diving in and understanding all of that and being there to to guide them as well. So help us understand more than on the investment side of the business more. A lot of firms will talk about customization and building unique portfolios for clients. And I, I think there are, there are many firms out there that, that do that and, uh, and, and, and do a great job of it. I think increasingly, though, uh, the, the business across the board has moved in a direction and in many ways of, of standardization, uh, certainly uh, amongst the bigger firms like the wirehouses, the, the private banks, and yeah. so on. Uh, it's just, you know, when you have a trillion dollars under management already, like many of these large institutions do, it's really hard to grow um, and, and grow meaningfully unless you sort of you know plug folks into one of a number of models and then focus on on asset gathering and, and so I think um, a lot of firms have moved in the direction of um, not customizing in, in in any sort of you know deep and meaningful way and so when we started the firm Carlos and I really set out to uh, create a platform where we could, uh, carefully customized portfolios to the needs of the individual families that we work with. And uh, the the way that we approach that is really by, by first and foremost, mapping out the ownership structure, uh, figuring out what the overall investment strategy or philosophy of the family should be. But then amongst the, you know, various uh generations of the family or legal entities, um, you may have different investment strategies or, or investment mandates, uh, depending on what the portfolio is designed to do. So I'll give you, you know, just sort of like a real world example of that. If a client was approaching a, a liquidity event and set up a GRAT, a grantor retained annuity trust, and there's an annuity payment that's supposed to come back to them from that trust over the course of some number of years, the way that you build the portfolio for that trust is going to be significantly different than the way you might build a portfolio for even another trust that doesn't have that same uh, cash flow obligation. And so the model of just plugging into one of uh, five model portfolios doesn't really work when you want to design portfolios in line with the, the specific cash flow needs or time horizon or whatever it may be of the entity. So, um, so we spend a lot of time on the investment side. Uh, really understanding what the the needs are of not just the family overall, but the the underlying elements uh, that make up the holdings, the family's holdings, uh, and then we build the portfolios around that. The investment platform and availability of uh, various types of unique investments is also an important part of the way that we uh, approach investing. So, one thing that was really important to us from the outset was to be 
truly open architecture. And, and so it's one of the reasons why we decided from day one to be fee only, to drop our brokerage registrations and not have any sort of uh, commission incentive or product sale incentive um, and, and really be as aligned as, as possible, we think, with the client. Um, you know, we saw firsthand over, over the years the inherent conflicts of interest in the brokerage and bank model um and not just looking at them like you lived them <laughs> yeah yeah so look I, I think i think there are a lot of there are a lot of firms out there that uh you know that proclaim that they have an open architecture investment platform and i think the reality is that that is a, a a bit of an exaggeration in my in my view of of it's, the way of the way the platform is actually created it's it's open it's completely open to any of the things that we pre-selected will be available on the said open platform exactly exactly and there's you know and there's a lot there's a lot of positives uh in in uh, as far as you know the global banks or wirehouse firms are concerned they you know they are they hire um, they hire smart people. I've, I've worked with, you know, just tremendously smart people um, in, uh, in in that world. Um, but at the same time, there are institutions that have many businesses, and um, and and product sales is a huge part of uh, of most of their businesses. And so, inherent in uh, any sort of product sale environment is conflict of interest. And a lot of times, um, you know, what ends up on an investment platform has some something to do with due diligence, but also has to do with selling agreements and payments for shelf space, uh, you know, where fund companies will literally pay brokerage firms to be, you know, to participate on the platform, um, you know, retrocession agreements, rebate agreements, right? All kind of fancy names for uh, payments that go back and forth uh, yeah. between uh, product, uh, between product managers and companies and distribution channels right. uh, for the sale of products. And so, you know, we, we, we did not want any of those, uh, those incentives to, uh, in any way, cloud our thinking or our judgment, and and I think that's that's hugely important. So um, so we uh, we really look at everything de novo, uh, you know, from uh, from the start, viewing it through the lens of does this make sense for our clients? Uh, is this something that we would want to include in portfolios? And we approach every manager meeting that way. Um, both in the public markets and and in the private markets, um, and then I, I, what's also been really interesting to us, going back to the unique investment component, is uh, I, there there's so much access to uh, quality private investments, alternative investments uh, via the RIA channel, particularly for uh, RIAs who are more multifamily offices and deal with uh, and work with larger clients. Um, in many ways, the the access is is so much uh, broader and more open than anything that we um, that we experienced when we were in the the banking what, and the wirehouse world. What makes it what makes it different? Like the the breadth of access to private and alts you get in the RIA channel versus having been in the mega firm environment, where I feel like a lot of that stuff basically originated. So some of, some of it is is really uh, just based on the practical aspects of of you know what these banks and, and wirehouse firms have to deal with in terms of capacity constraints. So, you know, if you're, if you're a, a large private equity firm or a mid-sized private equity firm, 
uh, you might have eight or 10 funds that you bring to market in a given year. And a few of those might be very large 10 plus billion dollar funds or even, you know, three year, three or five plus billion dollar funds. But several of them may be uh, smaller in size, a billion dollars, maybe even sub a billion. Um, and so when you think about the the world of the wirehouses and banks and so on. To start, they're serving, in many cases, 10, 15,000 advisors who in turn are serving hundreds of thousands or millions of, of clients. And so when you consider just the practical application of, of rolling a uh, you know, private equity investment or, or private credit investment across their client base, rolling it out across their client base, they need a pretty significant amount of capacity. And, and that right. capacity is not always available. And to take a step further, they also have, you know, institutional investors in those funds, sovereign wealth funds, pensions, insurance companies, et cetera. So really there's not in that billion dollar fund or even, you know, the the two billion dollar fund, there's not a billion of capacity. There's whatever capacity is left after institutional investors took their uh, you know, uh, their their interest. So, so, so basically as a mid-sized in a mid-sized credit world, I actually don't want a wirehouse or a bank, because basically, if I can get in the door, they're just going to oversubscribe the heck out of everything, which no one's really thrilled about at the end of the day. Uh, whereas if I'm if I distribute this in the RIA channel, I can go one firm at a time. I can get a handful of firms that have the right clients and the right fit. And if I'm you know mid sized PE or doing private investment work, that's a much easier sweet spot to get the right amount of dollars, large enough firms that can bring big checks, but not so many firms and advisors that you get swamped as the private fund and then have unhappy people because you're too oversubscribed. Exactly right. So that's that's the practical consideration. There's also an economic consideration. And the, the economic consideration is that uh, generally, if a fund manager, and particularly in the alternative investment space, is... Um, being distributed or their fund is being distributed through a right. wirehouse or banking channel, they are paying for that distribution. Right. And, right. and, so and it's that, like the RA doesn't ask for the rev share kickback. Exactly. Basically. And that rev share can be significant. I mean, numbers can run anywhere from two to 6%. So on a billion dollar raise, you know, that billion dollar raise could cost that private equity firm uh, between 20 and 60 million uh, in rev share over the course of the first several years of, of that fund. And, and the way that that gets paid generally is through a portion of the management fee uh, that the private equity firm collects over the course of you know the first several years of, of the fund. Okay. So it's, it's expensive. It's expensive capital for a private equity firm or a private credit firm to or, or a hedge fund, although we don't do much hedge fund investing, which I'm happy to get into the reasons why uh, later. But it's very expensive for them to raise capital right. uh, via the wealth management channel at a brokerage firm or a bank. And so what's happened over time, particularly as the family office uh, universe has proliferated, is these uh, many of these alternative investment firms have actually built um, coverage groups that specifically focus on single family offices, multifamily offices, and RIAs that work with ultra high net worth clients. And, and, and the reason why they've done so is because it makes total economic sense for them. Um, and, and also, you know, is, is, uh, from a practical, you know, how do we roll out this vehicle, 
uh, standpoint, it, it makes a lot of sense as well. So, so the conversations that we're having with these firms are so different than you know the interactions as an right. when we were an advisor at a large mm-hmm. institution. It's it's a much more um, sort of iterative, symbiotic type of conversation where they'll come in and say, okay, you know, here are the funds that we're bringing to market over the next, uh, you know, 12 months. What interests you? And so now we're having a conversation where we're leading with what we're looking for um, and the universe is being narrowed based on what we're looking to access. And so... um, So How do you find them then? Like, are you still going to one of the the various alts platforms that has cropped up so that you can do like your searching and finding and, and due diligence, or do you, do you pursue by other means? So for starters, Carlos and I have been very fortunate in that we have uh, fairly deep relationships uh, going back years with many of these private equity firms and managers, including senior management at, at many of the, the top firms in the country. So I guess that that's an advantage that's a little bit more challenging to replicate for okay. uh, for for advisors who maybe don't have that um, that that background and those relationships um, that that have developed over time. So that that's been hugely beneficial for us because uh, we're sort of you know one degree removed from from most firms that we okay. want to speak with. But so um, you don't have to go through some of the the RA platforms that have cropped up, which I'm right. presuming also get some version of their their distribution their financial participation the distribution for which once again a pe private credit firm is happier to work with you guys directly if it saves them the distribution costs as long as it's efficient on their time because you've got big enough clients who can bring big enough dollars to make this work for everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and it's not that we don't use the platforms uh, at all because we do have some some clients whose portfolio sizes are smaller and who can't write a large enough subscription check to go direct into the fund. Um, so it's actually what kind are, of a, a, What a are typical rate. check sizes in that world for you guys? What do people have to be prepared to write a check for to get to participate? It varies firm to firm, but in in general, what we have found is that most firm most PE firms are happy to let us go direct if the subscription amount is five hundred thousand dollars or more, provided that in the aggregate our firm is committing a larger amount of money. So that that might be you know ten million across across our our client base or something along those lines. But they will each of those investors will be a direct LP. Um, but the the fund will look at the aggregate commitment size across clients of the fund, okay. meeting what they would ordinarily right. think of as their minimum. Right, and this is literally into a single investment. And so, to to your prior uh, question about the you know the private equity platform businesses that are out there, we we will uh, we will work with them. So we've worked with in the past with both iCapital and Case on on various um, alternative investments, and generally not we're not accessing it via the platform for all clients there are clients who can go direct because the check sizes are you know are significantly larger than what would be required um and then for clients who cannot if the investment still makes sense even after accounting for um whatever expenses may be associated with the platform and so on uh then we may make the investment through a uh case or i capital or or similar platform but usually what we're what we're doing is direct and so as someone who's who's so deeply into these platforms, then I'm curious how you compare 
I capital and case? Is there one you use more than the other? And how do you compare them or decide which one to work with? We think having relationships with both case and I capital benefits our clients because there may be access to investments on one platform, but not the other that we think may may benefit them. And so it, I think in our case, it's important to have both. And then I'll just caveat that as well with, we also do a lot of direct and wherever possible, right. we want our, we want our clients to be direct LPs um, in the in the main fund rather than go through a, a platform, but it's not Sim- always possible. Sim- simply because of the cost savings that ultimately accrues to the client when you're not routing through a distributor or if you have a means to not route through a distributor. That's exactly right. And you can also negotiate better pricing, particularly with you know private equity and hedge funds and so on, because when the fund manager doesn't have to pay for distribution, there's incremental margin there. And so it's not uncommon for, for them, right? And so it's not uncommon right. for us to find scenarios. In fact, it happens all the time where we will see a uh, a fund that is shown to us by a private equity firm and we may choose to invest in it we may pass but then 6 or 9 months later we'll be forwarded an email you know by a client who maybe has a, a friend or a relationship with a, a wirehouse broker dealer right. and and there's that same fund 9 months later with a management fee that's 50 basis points higher than what we saw six or nine months prior. So, you know, what what that shows you is that the fund company or the fund manager, they want to maintain certain economics, right? So if they have to pay distribution charges to a third party, you know. Oh, yeah, it gets marked up to the client. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we're really, you know, we really take the client advocacy role very seriously. And that that extends to our discussions, even with private equity managers and uh, hedge fund managers. We will, we're not always able to do this. It obviously depends on the supply demand dynamics of of how many people are are seeking to invest in a, in a particular fund. But in, in, a number of cases, we're able to extract better economics for clients on account of the fact that we're we're often going direct and there's no distributor or brokerage firm in the middle. So then how do you think overall about the balance of just public versus private? It's like how how much client dollars, particularly with your clientele, go into, uh, dare I say, old-fashioned, good old-fashioned uh, public markets and what goes into the private alts world. Sure. So there's so many factors to consider in uh, in assessing that. Uh, obviously, uh, one of them is is needs for liquidity. So the larger the portfolio, generally speaking, unless a client's spending is extraordinarily high, uh, for for very large portfolios, um, that that generally means they can handle greater. Uh, you know, greater illiquidity. And so we're, we're big believers in private equity um, as, as, uh, as a long-term investment. We think when you look at the data and you consider the, uh, the performance and risk-adjusted performance for high-quality private equity managers over time, uh, there is a compelling case to be made for higher allocations to private equity, provided 
that you can uh, you can have the illiquidity in your portfolio that comes with being locked into an investment for, in most cases, ten to twelve years. Um, so, so we do have significant private equity allocations in portfolios. They tend to be larger as portfolio size is larger, uh, unless there are some spending needs or liquidity needs that um, you know that prevent us from from having a, a significant private equity allocation in a particular portfolio. We do very little uh, investing in hedge funds, pretty much none. Um, and but we do a lot of investing in private equity because we think private equity is an area where, um, when you when you consider a private equity fund, they're making investments. Uh, they aim to increase in value the investments and monetize them at a later point in time. And upon monetization, they you know they receive their incentive fee, which is a lot uh, better aligned than the the aforementioned hedge okay. funds. So. So I mean, in a private equity world, I find often the the financial participation is not not dissimilar in that uh, there's some ongoing base management fee, and then they participate in a in a chunk of the upside. Applies for private equity and applies for hedge funds, but it sounds like the the distinguishing factor for you is in the private equity world, you basically don't unlock any of that until the very very end. So you're you're in it to win it all the way through, yeah. Or, <laughs> because or you don't you don't get anything until the end. Whereas hedge funds, sort of the irony, because you participate in that upside downside with each year's volatility, you get a very different incentive structure where you just need a few big up years at the beginning and you make all your money. And if you get a down year, you say, ah, you know, we're going to shut this down, and then and then you start over again. And you you can't do that in the private equity world. Once the dollars are deployed, you're you're kind of in until you get to the end. That's exact. That's exactly right. And and I'm often surprised by how how often people conflate the two, uh, hedge funds and private equity, and almost treat them as kind of the same type yeah. of thing because they're you know they're 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 generally all limited partnership vehicles. Uh, they're they're very different, and they have very different incentive structures, and uh, obviously very different investment mandates. And so uh, we really like private equity and uh, I, I would say really dislike uh, the, the, the hedge fund universe. So now help us understand how this comes together from a, a fee structure perspective, how the business model works for you guys. So we have a fee, a wealth management fee that is based on assets under management. So our business is uh, consists of managing money managing you know discretionary AUM and then also advising and consulting on uh, on other assets um, whether we charge one or both of those fees depends on how much money we are managing for a family and the other services that are being uh, are being provided so for example um, there are relationships where we are managing a, a significant uh, liquid marketable securities portfolio for a family. Um, and we're also asked to uh, to perform other services like consolidated reporting or, uh, you know, general advice around uh, family office setup, family office governance, and so on. Um, but we're, because the asset sizes are, are very large and the money that we're managing is significant, 
we are not charging any sort of additional fee uh, for those services. They are part and parcel of the overall uh, you know, AUM-based fee right. that our firm charges. Um, there are other instances where we may be uh, managing a fairly small portfolio or no portfolio at all, depending on uh, the liquidity picture uh, of a family, but where we are asked to um, to provide strategic advice, consolidated reporting, um, consulting services or advice around uh, structuring and setup of a single family office. Um, we've been, we've had unique consulting engagements where we've been tasked with kind of building out uh, a family's sort of ownership structure because the family themselves, it's, you know, multi-generational and it, it, the structure had grown so complex uh, that they themselves weren't sure kind of where everything was and, and, and how nice, things grown. Nice. Yeah. So, so, you know, so there's an example where, um, you know, where it's, uh, you know, the, the revenue on, 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 uh, in that client relationship is is really solely driven by uh, a flat fee consulting engagement and 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 that flat fee was arrived at based on a an in-depth assessment of what the scope of work would be so before we took on that engagement uh, we interviewed and, and had a had a meeting with the attorneys for the family as well as the accountants for the family uh, and their the corporate finance arm of their company and that gave us a pretty solid understanding of what the scope of work would be and then we were able to arrive at what our what our fee for services would be um, in that in that scenario so, so so how do fee schedules work in in your world I mean is there a standard published fee schedule this percent of the first millions right. next threshold for the next millions and and so on down the line or or is this more of a like every client has a negotiated arrangement uh great, great question no it, we do have a published fee schedule um it's actually we're recording this on december 13th it's actually uh go, going up slightly on january 1st uh but that but that published fee schedule uh, and i'll give you the the, the the new january 1st one it's a fairly small incremental change there but it's uh it's one percent on the first three million uh and then it, it then drops to 85 basis points on the next seven million so that's up to 10 uh it is uh it's then 65 basis points on the next 15 million up to 25 45 basis points on the next 75 million up to 100 and then 25 basis points on uh every dollar above 100 million so that's a weighted average so the fee scales down right as the asset size grows and in the majority of our client relationships that is the uh that is the sole um way that we are paid for our services um in in some relationships as i mentioned earlier where that right. methodology doesn't make sense we um we have a flat fee arrangement functionally though are, are you are you still in a world of like 90 percent of the revenue of the firm is aum or? yes absolutely okay. so so we are still in a world where 90 percent uh or so of the revenue is aum driven it's changing um because the needs of of clients are changing and so we've done a lot of work over the years in um in areas that have uh, that have a lot to do with family office setup governance efficiency but but little to do with um with investment management uh and so 
investment management is still the core of our of our of our business and our, our revenue stream. But I, I'm finding that over time, uh, that that is changing. And by and by the way, the the 2017 uh, tax act had a had big impact on the family office space, which has led to a need among many families for. Uh, for for consulting services on family office setup and structure, um, and uh, we we have a deep uh, expertise and experience in that in that space. So we've often been you know called upon by families or or their uh, legal counsel or or accounting counsel. So, uh, so what changed if you're updating the fee schedule? Like what uh, uh, what had to change relative to wherever it was that you're you're updating and, and incrementing fees higher? Yeah, uh, great, great question. So I, we we have evolved our services uh, over time as a firm. So I think if you looked at us day one in 2016, you know, we really were a portfolio manager. Um, we, we started the firm to manage investment portfolios for, uh, for high net worth families. And um, as we've grown as a firm, we've, we've added uh, sophisticated technology. We've added um, personnel and talent to the team to focus on a variety of areas from, you know, complex planning to, uh, to philanthropy, to uh, comprehensive consolidated reporting. And we never really adapted our fee schedule to reflect the, right. uh, the, the broader All the added cost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Up, yeah. And, uh, and so it, it's really just to reflect the, the change in our business and the, and the scope of services and the, um, and the, the, the talent personnel and technology that we've added uh, over time. And we built, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the, of the, you know, the tech stack that we built because I think what makes it unique is the way we've really uh, geared it toward ultra high net worth families and, and family offices. Um, and so we've, we've over time really uh, refined all of the, the tools that we are, are using to really cater to a very specific uh, client base. And so what actually changed in the fee schedule? So it went up from um, that, 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 that first sort of tier of 1% of the first 3 million uh, was, was always there. Um, the other tiers basically went up about five basis points overall. So, uh, okay. so the, the next seven went from 80 to 85, and then the next 15 went from 60 to 65. The next 75 went from 40 to 45. Okay. Um, and then 100 million and up was always 25 basis points. So it incrementally went up a, little, a bit, but we, we were very um, – we we didn't arrive at that arbitrarily. We were very methodical. So we we took a look at um, we took a look at what our uh, our input costs were uh, for everything from technology to you know weight to wages to uh, insurance costs to you know everything else that goes into the the overhead of of, of running the business and. Um, and then we also did a competitive analysis. So we looked around uh, the industry and looked and tried to really hone in on on firms that we you know thought were within uh, what I'll call our peer group. So you know boutique in nature, focused on very high end service offering to to high net worth clients and ultra high net worth clients. Um, and only after we did that very uh, complete analysis of what the the competitive landscape looked like and what the um, you know the the operating costs look like. Did we arrive at, at the fee schedule? And thankfully, it didn't require that significant of a change. Um, but I think, uh, but I think the change was was warranted. Um, you know, given what we saw in the broader market. Well, and to me, does it it highlights what 
I've been fascinated by is one of the the counter trends to the conventional wisdom, right? The the dominant theme of the industry over the past 10 years has been robo and automation has arrived, fee compression is coming, just wait for all of us to start having our fee schedules knocked down. And in practice, everywhere I look over the past 10 years, ad- more advisors are raising their fees than than lowering their fees. Like we're we're using all the tech because you know who doesn't want more automation. It reduces the size of our back office because we don't need as many operations support when the tech automates. So then we hire more advisors and investment team and planners and do more things for clients. And we end up doing so many more things for clients after a couple of years. It's like, wait, not only are we doing more for clients than we did before, like we should actually be able to charge more than than we used to because look at all the additional things that we're doing now and. And then, yeah. behold, like we don't we don't see fee schedules getting compressed, we see more advisors raising than lowering. Yeah, I'm seeing that as well across the industry. But the key element there is you have to really earn that fee. And and you mentioned earlier, part of this is the the tech stack that you brought together for serving clients. So can you just touch on what what the tech stack looks like? Absolutely, I'm I'm really proud of the uh, the tech stack that we that we put together. So, first and foremost, we're big believers in in integration uh, between systems and software, and so we've spent a lot of time over the years making sure that uh, that our various software tools don't exist in a in a silo, but um, but but actually you know work together to to do what we need them to. So, uh, we were a uh, we were a client of Adapar from uh, the early days of the firm. So we use Adapar for our uh, performance reporting and, uh, and portfolio analytics. And um, what I think is unique, and there are, you know, there's, there are numerous other firms now uh, who, who use Adapar in their business. What I think is unique about the way that we utilize it is we have really spent the time developing customizations um, in, in attributes and views and logic functions and integrations with data providers um, into our Adapar instance. And I think we are delivering reporting in a way, and I've seen you know, lots of, of other uh, reports from, you know, from various firms out there that, that, use the, that utilize the same software. And, and I, I'm so proud of uh, the, the clarity um, and the the granularity of detail and everything that our that goes into our our reporting, um, and it was really a labor of love. I think we've probably spent uh, you know it's been eight years. We've probably spent I don't know ten thousand hours uh, developing and building customization into uh, in, into Adapar, uh and and integrations and if then logic functions and all sorts of things that um, that aren't just uh, you know the default turnkey uh, performance reporting platform and so and so that's been uh been really important we also um we also because we're managing portfolios across multiple custodians uh and and in many cases executing trades across multiple broker dealers uh we've invested in a very robust trade order management system we use red black for trade order management um there aren't that Many wealth management firms that I'm aware of that utilize Red Black. I think it's it's thought of as more of an institutional asset manager type of solution. Um, but given the you know the types of portfolios that we manage and the fact that we we're multi custodial, we manage across multiple um, you know custodians and brokerage platforms, uh, we felt it was really important. And so that you know we built an integration between. Um, 
between our trade order management system and our portfolio reporting system. Uh, so it really streamlines the uh, the the process of trade execution and then uh, you know reconciliation and then ultimately reporting. Um, so we have invested just heavily, both in terms of time and dollars, in building a, a really uh, phenomenal tech stack that I'm incredibly proud of because it it, it enables us to. Uh, you know, going back to the the clients being in charge and their needs being paramount, um, you know, it enables us to really accommodate the needs of clients. Um, if, a, if a client comes to us and says, you know, I understand that, um, you know, Fidelity and Schwab are your two recommended custodians, but I have a, you know, portfolio that needs to remain at, you know, Citibank or UBS in custody because I have a large line of credit there, uh, we can actually accommodate that because of the robust tech platform that we built to uh, to manage and report across portfolios. So so now help us understand the the team dynamics. I'm coming back to where we we started the conversation. As you noted, the the growth of the firm over the past eight years has been, you know, all these investments in a technology that automatically make things happen faster and more efficiently so that you could expand the investment team, expand the planning team, get a higher level of talent to do the very complex things that you have to deal with for your clientele. Uh, and and for most firms, that inevitably starts raising these questions and challenges around, okay, so how do we how do we build a career track for these people? Like, can they become partners? What does it mean to become a partner? Do they get to participate in equity? Who gets it and why and how? So I know you said at the beginning, this is very much something that you have been tackling the firm as well. So now can you talk to us about the uh, the career tracks and compensation structures that you built out for the team as you've developed this? Sure. So I'll, I'll be the first to admit my thinking about this topic has changed a lot over time. Okay. Uh, when we when we first were starting the firm, and, and I've been very fortunate throughout my my career to have great mentors uh, in a variety of areas, both within the financial industry, but also within um, within law. And um, one of my mentors, uh, I was meeting with shortly after we started the firm, and and I was talking to him about how we were thinking about growing the the business and growing the team. And my mindset at the time, candidly, when we first started the firm, is I thought that we would retain uh, all of the equity between Carlos and myself and then uh, compensate people well and and build the business in that way. Because I was sort of obsessed with this idea of maintaining uh, a level of control that I think in in hindsight, was really uh, just you know naive, and my my mentor, who was the uh, the, the managing partner or founding partner of a, a large law firm uh, that has since grown into, into one of the largest law firms in the country, you know, he he said to me, "That's a really terrible idea, David." <laughs> and so and so we had a conversation about it, and you know, his point to me, and he was a hundred percent right, was that you can't retain talent. And can't retain the 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 top talent over time unless you bring people into the business as partners, enable them to participate in the economics and the growth and enterprise value of the, of the company. Um, you just wouldn't be able to retain the best and brightest people if you unless you do that. And 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 so I've really reflected on that over the years, and I and I and I totally agree with that sentiment. And so around the 
third year that we were in business, Carlos and I started talking about how we put in place a, a structure that lets the team know that in every role, there is an ability to progress to partnership in the firm. Um, and, 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 and not just to say that, but to actually uh, create a structure behind it so that they know that we're, we, we mean what we say and that it's important to us uh, and that we've taken the steps to, to really start that process. So around year three, maybe year four, uh, we decided to create an equity appreciation rights plan. And um, I'll, I'll pause there for a second because you you may be familiar with those plans, but the but some, some of the listeners may may not be. So maybe I should define. Yeah, that. I think I think let's get let's have a refresher. <laughs> There's going to be some like oh, I think I remember reading about SARS in my CFP material. Is stock appreciation rights the same thing as this? So yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's so do the, let's do the kind refresher. Okay, perfect. So so we were so that there were two elements to this. We we wanted to we knew that over time we would invite uh, members of the team to buy in as partners in the business, and buy in was extremely important to us because we we felt that if we were to just grant equity to someone um, as you know a, a perhaps a form of compensation, it wouldn't be the same from their uh from from an accountability from a you know literal emotional buy-in perspective if there wasn't a monetary buy-in component to to joining the business so we knew that that when we ultimately offered uh partnership opportunities to members of the team that there was going to be a buy-in component but we also felt that it would be somewhat unfair to um, to ask a person who's been with the firm, let's say eight, nine, ten years, to buy in at the valuation at the you know at the at the ten year mark, when the reality is they've they've you know played a significant part in in the growth of the business over that ten year period over the time that they've that they've been there. So we wanted to find a way to uh, reward our team. Um, for the growth in value of the business over time, even before they were partners in the business. And, and so when that moment came, when they're invited to buy in as a partner, they've had some sort of uh, compensation come to them over time that was tied to the growth and enterprise value of the business while they were working alongside us to, to grow the, the firm. So an equity appreciation rights plan, while not perfect, um, accomplishes that. In a number of ways. So the way the the plan works is as part of um, as part of the compensation that certain key team members receive, uh, they receive uh, units of equity appreciation rights, uh, and they typically have a three year vesting period on those units. And the equity appreciation rights are based on the enterprise value of the company um, at the time of grants. And uh, and that's a formulaic valuation. It's not uh, it's it's not really a, a free market sort of sort of fair, you know fair market valuation. It doesn't have to be. It just uh, it it has to be consistent. Uh, and then uh, three years later, at the time of vesting, uh, they receive a cash payment that's equal to the delta, the difference between the value of that unit at the time of grants and the value of that unit upon the vesting date three years later. 
So what this really does is, is two things. Number one, it's an additional sort of compensation mechanism for team members that we want to reward and that we see as, as potential partners in the long term. Um, it also enables them to participate in the growth and value of the enterprise. And then when the day comes when uh, they buy in as partner, there is uh, some there's money that has come to them over time or cash that has come to them over time to help with uh, with the economics of that buy-in at that point in time. So who gets access to appreciation rights and this kind of additional cash comp kicker opportunity? Yeah. So technically, every member of our team is eligible to participate after they've been with the firm for several years. And so the next step in this process of figuring out, you know, the path to partnership was to actually uh, craft and, and, and put to paper a path to partnership. And that one uh, candidly took us longer to put together. So we, um, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about what are the criteria uh, for us that we would look for uh, in, in an individual uh, to be eligible to, to become a partner in the business. And I think, you know, we started with the premise that that depends on the role. So, you know, the expectations for someone who's in an advisor role uh, may be different than those uh, for a member of our investment team versus client service versus operations versus marketing and so on. So we spent a number of months over the last year putting together that path to partnership. And I'm happy to share that. It's a, please, I think a document that may be helpful to many RIA founders. Then just a quick note for folks who are listening. This is episode 371. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 371, we'll have links out to David's path to partnership document if you want to take a look and see what it looks like. So David, can you describe a little bit more though, just like what is the structure? How does this work? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's both quantitative and qualitative criteria. So when we were thinking about what we were we would look for in a partner in the business. You know, obviously there there are certain quantitative metrics, uh, depending on the role, of course, but but quantitative metrics that are important. So, for you know, for wealth advisors on the team, you know, there is a a business development responsibility in addition to a to a client relationship management and advisory responsibility. So, um, so some of the you know quantitative metrics for those roles involve new business development. Um, the the number of client relationships with which that advisor is involved, um, and and then there are also qualitative metrics like mentorship, uh, uh, the w- whether they've uh, led an initiative or a project uh, for you know for the firm, um, whether they have been involved in the training or education of new team members, uh, and then also. We, we really believe in being involved in uh, in our local community, but then in the in the industry and the finance community generally. So we think it's important that partners in the business not only ha- have you know checked the boxes of quantitative and qualitative criteria internally, but that they also have the respect of our industry peers and the community and you know COIs and other professionals in, in the business community. So we did our best to to articulate. Um, what the various criteria would be, and uh, and we we also uh, delineated between roles. So um, so uh, on the investment side, you know, there's the quantitative and qualitative criteria. Quantitative being uh, the the responsibility that they may have for oversight of 
uh, investment portfolios for a specific number of clients. Qualitative might be the role that they've played in you know, building some of the uh, trade order management or operational infrastructure of the investment side of the business. Um, and then you know, similarly on the client service side, there are both quantitative and qualitative metrics and so on. So um, once we had the completed document, we sat down with the team, we reviewed everything and the feedback was great in that I think, I think that it gave everyone much greater clarity as to what we are thinking uh, in terms of what would qualify somebody to be eligible for, for partnership in the business. So have you given thought then about, I'm presuming, well, you said earlier, would it would be a buy-in structure. Have you given thought like how you value it, how they'll, how they finance it? Like how will this work? Yes, we've given it a lot of thought. Now, I have to admit, I don't have all the answers, yeah. and we're we're definitely working through that and intend to over the next couple of years. I, I think in a uh, what what we will likely do from a valuation standpoint is bring in a third party from outside. So one of the firms that specializes in, yep. in valuation in our industry, we think it's important to have that objectivity. Uh, we don't want to you know unilaterally decide what the value of the businesses for for buy-in purposes. Um, and so we definitely feel it's important to, to bring in that that third party. Now in terms of financing, uh, candidly, the 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 best option would be uh, outside you know bank financing, but we're prepared to seller finance uh, the buy-in uh, or, or provide financing for the buy-in for the right candidate. We don't want their ability to obtain financing to be the impediment uh, to their becoming a partner in the business, uh, if we believe that they should be and would be a great partner in the business, so we've had uh, Carlos and I have had conversations about that. We, you know, we both feel um, uh, we both feel that we would be willing to uh, you know to finance a significant portion of a buy-in if we thought that it was uh, the the right the right candidate to be a partner in the business. Yeah, I think that you know fundamentally we really. And I think this is really important for entrepreneurship generally. We've always believed in delayed gratification. And, and and I think that you really can't start and build a business with a goal toward making it an enterprise um, if you're not willing to make near-term sacrifices for long-term uh, for long-term gain and long-term success. And we've always had that philosophy, whether it was investing in uh, in technology or investing in growing the team. Uh, or investing in infrastructure, um, that's always been our mindset, and I think that that extends to um, you know to partnership discussions where uh, where we are willing to make the 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 right decisions, even if in the near term uh, they may not be optimal for for us if they're optimal for the business in both the near and long term. So help me understand. The delineation you make between equity appreciation rights, which gives you know everybody who's eligible a chance to participate in the growth of the equity value of the business, and becoming a partner, where they have a chance to buy an equity and participate in the equity appreciation of the business that you get once you own shares. So they're two very different things. Um, you know, the equity appreciation rights in a lot of ways are like a deferred bonus plan, right? So really what you own is not, is not equity, uh, units of equity in the company. Right. You, you own a right to a payment that's equal to a formula. 
and that formula happens to be based on uh, the change in value. Right. And and that formula, you know, may or may not have anything to do with the or, or be reflective of the fair market value in an exit scenario. Um, there aren't voting rights attached to those equity appreciation rights, so you're not, uh, you know, you're you're not. You don't have these these say in the management of the business that you might have if you were a unit holder in and partner in the business, and also the the tax uh, treatment is is different. Um, equity appreciation rights are are taxes ordinary income basically to the recipient, so not not the right itself. Let me qualify that the right, payment right, right. the payment upon vesting is is treated as ordinary income as would a a bonus versus um, the Arguably, uh, or, or certainly, preferable tax, tax treatment of um, you know of capital gains on sale. I get it from that end, but just at the core, if everybody is supposed to be able to earn a little bit more yep. by participating in the appreciation of equity after they've been there three or four years, why not just give them a chance to buy a, a very small slice of equity after three or four years? Yeah, great question. So I, I think that the way that we think about it is. For us, when someone buys in as a partner, that's going to bring with it voting rights and a, and, a, and a seat at the table from a management perspective. So we've had many conversations about this and, and decided that we we don't want to uh, have you know a bifurcated sort of management or ownership structure where there's voting interests and non-voting interests, and there may continue to be certain decisions that require supermajority or a, a significantly greater portion of the vote. But we, when we bring in a new partner, we want them to have a vote and have a say. And we may not be prepared to to take that step with someone at the point at which we're willing to grant them equity appreciation rights, where they can participate in the economics and the growth in that manner, but not necessarily the you know the management of the organization. Okay, so that's the delineation because because partnership for you ties to management decisions and those responsibilities as well. Equity appreciation rights is sort of the the earlier mechanism of, okay, at three or four years, you can start getting a little bit of participation in the growth, the value creation of the business growing, but you have to get further down the road to actually get partnership and seat at the table. That's exactly right. And it's also a great retention strategy because the, what we do is we, you know, we grant equity appreciation rights each year on a rolling basis. Uh, and so what that does is, you know, every year you have recipients right. who receive grants and those grants vest three years later. And if they, you know, were to leave the firm, they would of course forfeit those those equity appreciation rights. So uh it's a you know, and we and we came from the world of of large bank uh uh, of large banks where you know you have RSUs and, and at any moment in right. time if you walk away from yeah. your job you're walking there's away from always the some on the table they and, always keep them rolling so you always have to give up something exactly yep. exactly so while I you know while I may not agree with uh, with everything about the way they manage their uh, their yeah. business uh, that was definitely something that I took away because I know uh, <laughs> because I know how important it was for retention at those at those institutions so um, so we were really looking to to uh, to to accomplish all of those things, right? To reward key team members who we wanted to reward, uh, to you know also create an incentive for retention, and then also to create kind of a stepping stone toward ultimately a partnership buy-in several years later. And on the equity appreciation rights end, like, do you think of this in sort of a bonus style, like everybody's eligibility is a certain percentage of their salary that they can earn in bonus variable comp? Is it that kind of arrangement? 
Yeah, we do think about it, I think, in that way. There's no, you know, precise formula, but but it's really been a a an iterative discussion of what do our pro forma uh, sort of target growth goals look like? What does that mean in terms of uh, increasing enterprise value of the business? But more importantly, what does that mean in terms of increase of value based on the formula uh, of multiple of you know earnings before owners comp that we've created for these appreciation rights? And does that align with what where with the level at which we're comfortable compensating this individual you know at the time of vesting and and that's really the way that we've approached it so it hasn't really been a, a percentage of of compensation and and by the way if we exceed those growth goals we're more than happy to write a larger check to the uh, well, individual on the team. Kind of by definition, you should have the cash flow for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so, you know, that's sort of the, it's very much aligned in that manner, right? There's never a time uh, when we have been disappointed to pay uh, a, you know, a, a bonus tied to equity appreciation rights because it means the business is growing and that's great. So as you reflect on this journey, what surprised you the most? about building an advisory business? How many different things I would need to learn. (laughs) That's that's really, when I really reflect on it, um, you know, eight years ago, I I was a private banker at a, you know, at a large global bank and we're seeing investments and lending and, and, and a variety of areas. But I knew nothing about tech infrastructure and trade order management systems and portfolio reporting systems and building API integrations uh, and just, you know, all of these other areas, whether it's compliance or legal or, uh, or, or HR, you have to learn so many new things in launching and building an RIA. And I, I actually have really enjoyed that because I'm, I'm intellectually curious. I like to dive in and learn about all these, all of these areas. But there are so many areas where I am now reasonably knowledgeable, where I was completely clueless eight years ago. And so I think as I reflect on it, that's probably what surprised me the most. I think, I think you know, when you start a business, you have some sense that there is going to be a lot that you need to learn and that you don't know everything and that you'll figure it out. But I think when you actually dive in and realize how truly how much you do not know, uh, oh. it's, <laughs> it's an incredible- you do this, like, why did I do this to myself? It's, a, it's an incredibly daunting, you know, uh, experience, but I have zero regrets. I'm, I'm so happy and so proud of the, the way the firm has grown, the amazing relationships that we have with the clients that we serve, the amazing team uh, that we've built and who really enjoys coming together and, and working together each day. It's, it's just an incredibly gratifying experience that I, I, I could not imagine doing it any other way. Uh, but it has been an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of work, and uh, we've had to learn so much about areas that we had no knowledge of prior. So what was the low point on this journey for you? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, so for me, the, the first couple of years were probably the most challenging. Uh, that's, that's where you're really just trying to refine your business model and figure out um, what's working and what's not. And 
we we were fortunate. We had some some pretty good early traction, but we were investing in in building the team and building infrastructure and all of that. And so, um, and, and and there was a moment at which, and I remember this. Uh, I just shared it with a friend of mine the other day. I remember, you know, like sixteen months into building the firm. Uh, it was growing, but not growing, you know, quite as quickly as I thought it, it might. And we were plowing every dollar back into the business to hire and to invest in technology and to do all these things. And I remember sitting at my dinner table with my wife and we were talking about the business and I was terrified that I had made a huge mistake <laughs> leaving a huge, no. leaving a large bank and foregoing the salary uh-huh. and foregoing the bonus and plowing money into the business and and I remember that just being a really terrifying moment. I had my wife and I had had two children at the time. We now have four, uh, so our family has grown, and um, and that was a very uh, you know very scary uh, time. But you know then then. Uh, maybe a month later, I remember, and I'll never forget this moment. I remember uh, receiving a phone call from uh, a prospective client that we had been speaking with, who said, "You know, I'm just calling to let you know that I, I want to move forward with you guys." And um, yeah. and, and and so the roller coaster, exactly the roller coaster. So it was just this euphoric moment on the back of you know a moment where I was wondering whether I had made the right decision and whether you know the, the business was going to be successful and grow. So the the early days have a lot of of ups and downs. And um, that was probably the hardest part. I, I think once we got past the two-year mark, and we then it became more about refining uh, strategy and thinking about where we wanted to be in ten years, versus uh, just making sure that you know the business would survive. <laughs> so that started, once you got to year three, it starts to shift. Definitely, definitely. And you know now we're having a lot of fun. I mean, we're still working extraordinarily hard. Um, you know, still challenging ourselves every day to improve and and to get better. Uh, but it's, you know, the, the issues are less existential and more strategic. And, um, and so it's really an enjoyable, uh, time, I think in the evolution of the business. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago? I think I would tell myself eight years ago that, it's important to get comfortable delegating and to do so on a on a quicker timeline. So I I'm a very type A person. I like to be in control of of you know everything going on. And I think you have to build a business, you have to relinquish that control. You have to know that you've hired great people and trust them to do their job and do it effectively and really let them run with it rather than try to micromanage. And I still struggle with this, I think, to some extent, because it's just in it's just who I am. I want to be involved in everything. But I've gotten a lot better at it over the years. Uh, and if I were to give myself advice from back then, I would say do that faster. Get get comfortable delegating. And, you know, if you've hired the right people, which I'm very confident that we have, then you can trust in them to run with their area of expertise. So what advice would you give younger, newer folks coming into the industry today? So the advice that I usually give when uh, when younger folks ask me how to, you know, break in and what to do, 
I just tell them to learn everything that they they possibly can. There's no way to rush this business. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I, when I started at Goldman Sachs, I don't think I got my first client for over a year. I think it took me over a year to bring in a client. Now, thankfully, Goldman was patient with me, but I think there's but no... It's hard getting clients when you're hunting for big fish and you're exa- young. Exactly. Exactly. I was 26 years old, but I think it's really important to be patient. This is a this business is a series of, of small steps that you know that happen over time. And then at some point you look back and you're like, wow, I've covered a lot of ground, you know, making these making these small steps. And when you're, you know, 22 coming out of college or even 25, 26 coming out of graduate school, there's a temptation to be in a rush. You want to you want to earn, you know, as much money as you can as quickly as you can. You want to get promoted as quickly as you can. Um and I think that this business, I mean, that does it does work like that for for some. I think for most people, uh, it's a business where every activity, every every day, every month builds on it on itself, and and it takes time to get where you want to be. So it's really important to be patient. Uh, but while you're being patient, you really need to be focused on doing all the right things. And to me, you know, all of the right things means developing as much knowledge as you possibly can early on in your career. Um, it's, it's not enough just to be, you know, charming and a good relationship person. Uh, there, there's lots of, you know, charming relationship people. You, you really need to know your stuff and you need to know it better than anyone. And I, I tell college students all the time, the best way to do that is try to read one book a week. If you're 22 or 25 and you read one book a week, you've read 500 books 10 years later. And and I can almost guarantee that there's just about no one out there or a, a tiny fraction of 1% of the population that has read 500 books over a 10-year period on subjects ranging from investments to tax to U.S. history uh, to, to, to whatever it may be. And then I think developing your network, which is something that also takes a, a very long time. It's a, it's a slow start and it takes years to really develop relationships with uh, other professionals, with COIs, and then of course with uh, prospective clients and clients. But if you diligently work at it, at expanding your network and expanding your knowledge over the course of years, you will find yourself invariably in a great position five, seven, or 10 years out. And I think just about anyone can do it if they really diligently focus on those areas and they're patient about it. I've always viewed business development as having kind of three prongs to it. There's the cold outreach, there's the networking with other professionals and, and centers of influence, and then there's community involvement. Now, each of those things takes, uh, you know, happens at different at a different pace. So, cold calling, extremely low probability, but you can move from you know uh, someone you didn't know to someone who ultimately becomes a client a lot faster, particularly if you're at a large institution where there's a recognized brand. Um, you know, community in, uh, or, or uh, networking with other professionals takes a long time, but it's deeply rewarding. You, you build great relationships and hopefully have great referral relationships over time. And then the community involvement piece is where you become really a, you know, a brand ambassador uh, for your company or your profession and, you know, a, a, a known person in the in your community and that takes a, a very long time but is also deeply rewarding and can result in many client relationships over time so i've 
I've always been of the view that you have to do all three, especially early in your career, because you know often depending on the firm that you're with, you, you won't have enough runway to like start developing a network of attorneys and accountants and and hope that they send you a referral. So I do think the cold outreach component has to be a part of your business development strategy early in your career. But I think while you're doing that, you have to be cultivating relationships with other professional advisors in legal accounting and so on, because those will be the referral sources for you in the long term. And so I haven't picked up the phone and called somebody cold in in years, but I I did in the early days because that was my, that was the easiest, the the quickest way for me to get some traction. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. and, And just one of the themes that come up is the word success means different things to different people. How do you define success for yourself at this point? So for me, success is defined as having a significant impact on the lives of many people in my orbit, from the clients that we serve to the members of the Element Point team, uh, and ultimately creating successful outcomes for each of them based on their own definitions of success. It's more important to me, I, you know, financial success is, is important. And, you know, certainly it's something that I think about. But that's never been enough for me. I think if that was enough for me, I would have been happy to sort of, you know, climb the corporate ladder at, at large global banks. For me, fulfillment is about more than that. I need to know that what I've done has meaning and has an impact on on people's lives. So I would love to see Element Point continue to grow to a firm with you know, 10, 15, maybe $20 billion in, in assets under management and create many jobs and careers along the way and also impact the lives of many clients along the way. And you know, ultimately, if there's an exit scenario, I don't know what exactly that means. I might want or prefer to, or Carlos and I might want or prefer to exit internally to, you know, partners within the business so that we can really build a hundred year organization to steal, I think, Abby Stein's, you know, line from Crescent. I, I think that would be incredibly rewarding uh, to, to kind of see the organization live on. Whether that means maybe an exit to, you know, a strategic or something like that over time, that could be as well. I would be very careful about that because I really believe in the fee-only fiduciary model of the business, and I would want to make sure that continued. I'm 40, so I've got many years ahead of me of of continuing to run and, and, and build this business. So success to me is really, you know, continuing to scale and grow, but not necessarily for purely financial reasons, more for reasons of impact and seeing the organization flourish and the people around it flourish. Very cool. Very cool. You've got a a lot of years to keep compounding from age 40. That that maths well for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. 
And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.